Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And you know what I'm going to say. As ever, we have got a lot to cram in in our time together. A few notices from me, if that's okay with all of you at the beginning. Then I'm going to reflect. Uh, Last week, I went kind of contextual, one of our favourite words uh, for new listeners and new members of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative is context. To make sense of volcanic events erupting around us now, you always have to go back. Things don't happen by chance on a daily basis. There are always seeds that are sown much earlier. And in terms of making sense of the crises erupting around Sunak, uh, well, I went back to 1997 and the Tories' failure to reform in the aftermath of that epic landslide defeat in 1997. Now I'm going to focus in on one issue, which I think explains in a micro way a lot of what's going on. And it is a name, a person. Boris Johnson. And I'll be looking at that, um, if it's all right with you, in a moment. Uh, Then a fantastic range of questions, some of your reflections on the interview with uh, Theresa May's former Joint Chief of Staff, Nick Timothy, and his ideas about where a modern Conservative Party should and could go in terms of economic policymaking. And it's one of the interesting what-ifs, I think, if um, he had managed to survive and navigate the torrents erupting around Theresa May, what a Conservative Party might look like. Um, I'm not a fan of what-ifs, but I think that's an interesting one, as is what if Michael Heseltine had won the Tory leadership contest in the autumn of 19. 19- 90, a passionate pro-European at a junction where the Tory Parliamentary Party was not at that point set so against the European Union that any MP was calling to leave. And a whole range of other questions too. Uh, So yeah, uh, get running if you're running or baking or eating. I'm getting a lot of emails where you tell me you're listening whilst having these fantastic sounding curries except for I'm a vegetarian, so um, I wouldn't eat most of them. But I kind of get the picture, and I'm excited by it. Anyway, just a reminder that, oh yeah, the email address, of course, because I kind of assume you've got it. But if some of you haven't got it, there's no way you can contact me to tell me you haven't got it. So um, it's uh, steverick14 at icloud.com. And just on that steverick14 at icloud.com. And while we're on those kind of notices, those of you who kindly subscribe to Patreon, we're in a new month, aren't we? Any day now, some of you will be listening to this in a new month. And it means episode two of The Troublemakers. Uh, The first episode was Tony Benn. The next episode coming up, you'll have it in the next few days, is Enoch Powell. Just a fascinating figure. I was going to say complex, but perhaps he wasn't. Anyway, if you subscribe to Patreon, you get that and loads of other bonuses. The live shows, just very quickly, if you don't mind uh, me running through them, because as I kind of almost discovered on the podcast as I was reading them out, it's like a kind of mini, mini tour. Birmingham, March the 21st at the Thousand Trades Club. 
King's Place, March the 23rd. Uh, the first one at King's Place of the year. Dun, 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 dun. Taking a break. It's usually kind of pretty regular, but it's the first of the year. Belfast on March the 26th at the Black Box Hill Street, uh, which I gather is a great uh, venue that evening. Rope Tackle Shoreham, March the 29th. Uh, the Witham at Barnard Castle, April the 1st. The Old Market Theatre, Brighton, on April the 24th. And all the links will be in uh, the blurb for the show so you can get tickets and we can all get together of an evening. A few drinks to make sense of it all. Yeah sort of. Anyway, thank you. That's it for assembly notices. The, as I say, there are long-term reasons for the uh, current crises around the Tory party. They are hugely significant because given half a chance, England votes Conservative for reasons we've explored in this podcast uh, many times. Um, Might have to do so again at some point. So it is hugely significant, the capacity of this party to reform. One of the great myths around this party is, oh, it's so adaptable, it changes with the times, and that's why it wins. It doesn't change very much. It is not adaptable. Uh, It doesn't see what's uh, in front of it. Indeed, Jeremy Hunt, he made that big speech on Friday. And I read, you know, someone, one of his advisors was briefing, oh, Jeremy thinks he's Jeffrey Howe in the early 1980s, doing the tough stuff. So if there's anything good that emerges, they know that they've gone through the tough stuff. They cannot escape the 1980s. And it is so dangerous for Britain and bad for the Tory party. Um, And Nick Timothy is one of those who has escaped, uh, if he was ever there. Here's another one, Rishi Sunak, picture of Nigel Lawson in his office. Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng for the five seconds they were in power briefing. It's like Nigel Lawson's budget that, you know, could cut the income tax dramatically. They cannot leave the 80s behind. So there are kind of deeper reasons. But anyway, if you didn't listen, that, that was the podcast before last. But there is an immediate reason uh, for Sunak's deep problems. And it is Johnson. And therefore, if you identify that cause, uh, there is, you know, there's a talk, this cliche, this tiny route for Sunak to get to a better place. The route becomes clearer when you identify that particular problem, because it is this. It's very interesting with prime ministers. Uh, There's a sort of Shakespearean arc in that the origins of their rise to the very top often bring about their downfalls. Now, I haven't got time to give examples of previous prime ministers, but it applies very much in the case of even those long-serving ones like Margaret Thatcher, Harold Wilson, Tony Blair, in reasons that I, I think I've gone through in the past. It's in the book on prime ministers. But the way they saw their rise and made sense of their rise to the very top brought about their fall. And in Sunak's case, politics moves so fast, it's easy to forget. Sunak uh, had to win a leadership contest in the strangest of circumstances. He had lost his battle with Liz Truss. She then resigned, and it looked as if the path would be clear for him to then take over. But of course, as ever in the modern Conservative Party, Uh, Johnson uh, wants a role. 
And he famously and bizarrely uh, bid uh, to stand, having been removed just a few months before on grounds that um, wholly justified the, in effect, insurrection. He couldn't form a government. But Johnson being partly deluded, uh, not wholly, there's a, he's a complicated figure, there's a streak of self-awareness and uh, then huge dollops of delusion. Johnson would have forgotten the, the causes. He thought he was hard done by. He has joked in various well-paid speeches, well-paid, absurdly paid speeches. It was a hot summer. Tory MPs went a bit bonkers. Um, and he, of course, put in that challenge to take on Sunak and was deluded enough, if you remember, to meet Sunak, to ask him to stand aside so they could all unite around uh, Johnson. But Sunak then acted in a way that uh, is going to possibly bring about his own downfall. In order to defeat Johnson, uh, he offered, for a start, Suella Braverman a job. That is the reason why she is Home Secretary. It is not because Sunak discovered great merit and virtue in a figure who, remember, had been sacked by Liz Truss days or weeks earlier. He felt he had to do it to win. And therefore, she is in the Cabinet on that basis alone. Now, Sunak can never say this, uh, but we all know that is the reason. And in a way, uh, although uh, less dramatically, but it was part of the calculation, the same applies to Zahawi. Here is someone who uh, will come on to the, um, the investigation by the so-called ethics advisor in a moment, uh, or the report of the investigation, which is utterly damning in a very clear prose. Anyone who reads that, uh, apart from Zahawi, who thinks he's been hard done by, uh, could only reach one conclusion. However, there he was, Zahawi, on the night uh, Sunak actually won, in inverted commas, because Johnson withdrew. Uh, Zahawi was writing an article backing Johnson. He was in that extraordinary summer of uh, storms and turbulence, the most fickle of the cabinet ministers. And by the way, there were many of them who pathetically changed, trying to follow who was going to win in order to remain in these creaky cabinets. Sunak felt, I mean, I think he, he saw, you know, these are multi-layered calculations. In Zahawi, someone, ironically, because of his time with YouGov, etc., could follow the data and all the rest of it and would be quite useful as a Conservative chairman in that respect. But one of the things, again, was here was a unreliable, fickle figure who it would be better to have in the tent than being outside as someone who, up until the last moment, had backed uh, Johnson, having told Johnson to go in the summer, having accepted being Chancellor, etc., etc. We are dealing with shallow figures who calculate self-interest at every moment, another sort of legacy of Johnsonian, Johnsonism, really, where you know self-interest was a wholly legitimate spur at the top of the Conservative Party. So he formed this cabinet very quickly in the most bizarre of circumstances. The person who had beaten him resigns and the chance opens for him 
but only if he can defeat Johnson, who never disappears in the modern Tory parliamentary party. And that meant from the beginning, uh, Sunak was in a weak position. Now, this word weakness is uh, used uh, often in British politics, and it is damning. Uh, No wonder Keir Starmer uses it. He's again copying Tony Blair. He used to call John Major weak. You're weak, weak, weak. And Major hated it sitting there. Now, the term is potent, but more complicated than it sounds. Because what you have to assess is, with that term weakness, whether it's the character who is weak or the position that character is in. Now, perhaps Sunak is uh, a weak figure. Uh, We will learn that soon enough in the coming months. Certainly, he has shown none of the artistic skills of leadership, and perhaps we shouldn't be surprised by that. He's risen to the top very quickly. He was uh, untested, really, in the early months as Chancellor, when he was supremely popular, giving tons of money away. And when he was tested, uh, he got uh, irritable and became a lot less popular as Chancellor things started to unwind for him. So, Maybe he is weak, but that's not the point of the current situation. He is just in a weak context. It is a context where assertiveness from the leader becomes very tricky. So obviously, and it was very clear to all of us and just about everyone else, uh, Zahawi had to go. But he, Sunak, although I can't think of a figure he is less like, is in a sort of Macbeth situation. As ever, you have to turn to Shakespeare as a guide to get us through politics. By the way, he was very good on strength and weakness and the perception of strength in his history plays. Um, uh, Have a look at Richard II, uh, for example. But so Sunak is in no position to be uh, mighty and dominant over his party and his government for several reasons. The context in which he won, which we've just explored, he lost the leadership contest, then won it by default. He wasn't elected by the party membership, which is always a kind of weakness, as Theresa May discovered. And he has this cabinet, which was put together, A, to help him win, because he thought Johnson might win, and B, to try and retain some sense of balance uh, within those who yearn for Johnson in ways that only a psychiatrist could understand and the other kind of factions of uh, that uh, insurrectionary parliamentary party. As I say, the, the backdrop to a lot of this is the Tory parliamentary party has become harder to lead than the Labour parliamentary party. And if someone had uttered that sentence in the 1980s, they would be told to go and lie down in a darkened room. That has been an extraordinary change over the last two or three decades. Sunak is in a weak position. He felt he had to appoint Braverman to win. But now he's in that Macbeth situation. Uh, you know, for those of you who haven't read Macbeth or seen Macbeth, you know, he kills one person. He thinks, well, that's got me out of that trouble. Uh, then he has to kill another one. because, uh, And it just goes on and on and on. And with the 
late sacking of Zahawi. There are questions around that, but also about, well, if he sacked Zahawi for breaking the ministerial code, why did he appoint Braverman and why does he not sack her now? Now, we know the answer to that. We've just discussed it and he can't say it. So it puts him in this sort of weak position. And then he's got this awkward situation, awkward, uh, more than awkward situation with Dominic Raab, where there is an investigation to bullying complaints, uh, which is taking so long because there have been so many complaints. And that is a different situation. Raab has backed uh, Sunak through all these twists and turns, and therefore there is that bond of loyalty because Raab was loyal as Sunak made his moves to the top. But that too can put huge pressures on a leader in a weak position. How does he act when the moment comes? But to go back to this immediate cause, Johnson, it was because Johnson put in a deranged bid to return within months to being prime minister that Sunak had to appoint this cabinet speedily without doing the necessary thinking about the consequences of those appointments, our other favourite word in this podcast, consequences. So he now will face many questions about Braverman, as well as what he knew about Zahawi and when he acted and how he acted, etc. But it's more than that. He came in, uh, Sunak, rightly saying that he would establish uh, a new framework of integrity, and maintaining high standards in public office. As I suggested this week, this should have been the easiest bit of the whole mountainous challenge he faces, but it's proving the most difficult because of the Johnson legacy. We are finding out on a daily basis uh, more and more about uh, Johnson's time in number 10, All of it shocking if we weren't almost immune to being shocked uh, by what we hear about his conduct. But the whole furore over the £800,000 loan, the mediating role of the BBC chair, and so I'm going to look at the BBC at some point, it is uh, in crisis not only because of its... uh, chairman and etc but 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 there are other reasons they all interconnect as they tend to do with crises but johnson if he needed 800 grand uh to keep going should not have stood to be prime minister uh, but it wouldn't have crossed his mind he would say i i i want to win i'll be prime minister then i'll get the money and sure enough he got the money but then even now as I think voters, you know, imagine voters in the Red Wall hearing about 800,000 grand he needs just to keep going. And then he sort of is doorstepped about all of this and then says, Richard Sharp, nothing about my financial affairs. And then we hear that he got advice from the cabinet secretary saying you can't use Richard Sharp anymore to advise you on financial affairs, in effect. Each element of it highlights the scale of sleaziness and corruption. And of course, we've now got uh, looming the Select Committee investigation into Partygate, which will be televised. There will be a growing sense, I think, even amongst those Red Wall voters who worshipped uh, Johnson for reasons um, that, again, frankly, needs a psychiatrist to explain. No, it doesn't actually. It's all to do with Brexit and the fact that they saw him delivering on their wish at the time, a wish that is changing, I suspect. 
2016. They thought uh, the elite were trying to put a barrier up against their uh, victory in that referendum, and here was the person who delivered. In other words, they saw him as uh, one of them and trustworthy. When it Everyone said, oh, it's baked in that everyone knows he's a liar and a rogue. I don't think that's the case. I think they saw him as one with them over Brexit and saw him, therefore, almost as a bond of trust between them. Well, you know, voters don't follow politics, but they will be picking up some of this stuff. And uh, look at the polls. They're turning against them. And so John, Johnson has left and continues to leave this legacy of mendacity, rule-breaking and corruption and, and going around as if it's perfectly acceptable and has his followers who still want him to come back. So it seems to me that the one thing that Sunak can and should do, and though it is risky because I say he is in such a weak position is to absolutely mark a break with that Johnson era and to almost state it explicitly. I say almost because if he does it too overtly, he's then trapped again. Well, you were his chancellor, you know. It's the thing, by the way, that Kistama is going to get into trouble with uh, by his, his mistaken move of suspending the whip for Jeremy Corbyn and not letting him stand at the next election. You know, if he's that bad, what the hell were you doing in his shadow cabinet? Uh, he, 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 his office and he are think they're in the right place. Look at us. We've changed. We've got rid of Corbyn. The question will be asked again and again and again. If he's too dangerous to stand even as a Labour candidate, how the hell did you stay in his shadow cabinet and tell everyone to make him prime minister at the last election? Big, big mistake strategically it's a big mistake and obviously uh sunak was uh in uh, johnson's cabinet for a long time so he cannot be wholly dismissive but on this issue of integrity he must be because it is so obvious that uh johnson was uh up to his neck in it and um and he has the virtue of resigning he was one of the first to resign he should have done it much earlier when John Major got in in 1990, he was very clever in a way. He he kind of conveyed in quite big ways a shift from Margaret Thatcher to her fury because she had backed him. Sooner hasn't got that problem. Johnson never backed him. Johnson loathes him. You've got to show you're moving on. It's complicated because apparently some voters still adore Johnson and want him back and some MPs want him back and some party members. But on this, if Sunak wants to move on, He's got to absolutely mark in a big way the break with Johnson because it is Johnson who uh, is the immediate cause. There are many deeper causes, but the immediate cause of Sunak's many crises, actually virtually all of them, frankly, the Brexit deal. I mean, I, I would love to know Sunak's real thoughts about the Brexit. I know he's a Brexiteer for reasons that, again, are utterly baffling. But I bet he's not a fan of that Brexit deal. And I'm sure Hunt isn't. But again, a Johnson legacy thing. They can't deal with that. They're stuck with it. But on integrity, uh, they need to mark a distance. And I think it will become even more acute uh, when the Partygate stuff gets going. Uh, listen, there's an ITN 
podcast on Partygate. Some of you might have heard it. And um, yeah, uh, just I thought, oh, it'd just be a rehash of all the shocking stuff that we know, but there's more. So if he can't deal with Johnson, uh, I think Sunak will end up in a weaker position with Johnson hovering. He needs to almost take him on, to use that cliche. You know, it's always the Labour Party leadership always get the advice. Oh, you've got to take on so-and-so. You've got to take on the left. You've got to take on so you know, and it fuels a kind of sense of internal hatred, um, which is already there within the Labour Party always. But I think he's got to take him on, and uh, he can do it in, in ways that are not wholly confrontational. But voters have got to see a change in that respect. I mean, you know, we've all talked about the other things where, which are, you know, Britain's not working. That's another more fundamental challenge. Uh, but the sleaze, uh, it, he won't escape it unless he absolutely marks a move on from that appalling era. Anyway, look, let's now turn to your questions. We've got some fantastic questions, uh, some of them about uh, the interview with Nick Timothy, who, uh, as I say, it's very interesting, his view about the good that government can do. I mean, obviously, a lot of us will disagree with him on Brexit and on some of his views about uh deregulation but I think he's very interesting about uh, the good that government can do and the role of the state I asked him for those of you who didn't listen again that's the last podcast if you didn't listen you can listen back what if if you strip out all the stuff that uh, meant none of this agenda got moving when he was uh, chief of staff to Theresa May what it would look like now and he said much more Christian Democrat like uh, a Christian Democrat run Germany which is you know that's where I think the Tories should be as a one nation Tory party Uh, look at the Christian Democrats in Germany but anyway uh, anyway uh, there's no the, the thing is where is that in the in all the factions in the parliamentary Tory party, you don't hear much about this, although he did say in the interview there were Tory MPs who shared his views. So over to all of you, and do, do remember, if you want to join in our never-ending conversation, it's steverick14 at iCloud.com. Let's begin with Andrea Valentino. I'm continuing to love the podcast. Uh, oh, thank you very much. And getting the uh, subscribed to Patreon. Thank you, uh, Andrea. While listening to your interesting interview with Nick Timothy, I was especially struck by your discussion about the lack of economically left, culturally right Tory MPs. It got me wondering about a similar dearth in the media. Apart from a few exceptions like Peter Hitchens, I struggle to think of many columnists who support the kind of politics Timothy uh, espouses. Yeah, it is It is interesting um, that uh, I know Nick Timothy used to get furious when he used to read columns when uh, he was in number 10, as this really powerful figure, one of the most powerful chief of staffs. Um, uh, in recent times, he kept on reading that after Cameron and Osborne, this marked a great shift to the right because the columnists A thought fell for the idea that Cameron and Osborne were on the so-called centre ground, 
Uh, and because they were Remainers, they put Cameron and Osborne to the left of Nick Timothy on economic grounds. When it's, you know, you just have to listen to it. And it's obvious you can disagree with it all, but that's not the case. Yeah, you speak a lot about how wily politicians like Cameron and his reforming spiel can shape media consensus. But from the opposite angle, how much do you think politicians are influenced by the media when shaping their views and how vocal they are about them? Yeah, that's a good question. The answer is a heck of a lot. But more on the Labour side, uh, Andrea. Uh, The Labour side are uh, obsessed in a way rightly by the media, because the media remains very powerful in um, shaping how voters see the parties. Uh, Because none of us follow politics all the time, even us lot, in the raw, so to speak. So it's mediated on our behalf. And in Britain, it's mediated for Labour in a very kind of uh, negative way, which partly explains the caution of New Labour and the caution of Keir Starmer. It partly justifies it. Uh, but there are traps in the caution, uh, which we, we we have explored and will no doubt explore again. Thank you, Andrea. Oh, are you coming back from America? Oh, great. As you say, good timing, I know. Yeah, not the greatest time to come back, actually, um, to Britain. But uh, we'll come to some of your live shows. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. See you there, Andrea. Stephen Townsley says, just watch Michelle Barnier on Laura Koonsberg. She gave him about 30 seconds to analyse the effect of Brexit on Britain. The in-depth journalism that seems to be the mainstay of BBC political programmes. Well, to be honest, because of that reason that they cram in too many guests, I've given up watching Stephen, so I didn't see it. It would have been interesting to hear more from uh, Barnier about uh, how he sees Brexit at the moment. Um, But yeah, I'm not surprised that he got about 30 seconds. Thank you uh, very much. Tom Bucknell says, uh, oh, I enjoyed coming to the King's Place Christmas special. Oh, it's great. Pleased you enjoyed that. Seems a long time ago now, Tom, but hopefully you'll be able to come along in March when we'll be in a whole new world. Uh, Listening to Jeremy Hunt's Bloomberg headquarters speech, I found it interesting that he mentioned our European neighbours and allies a lot, but only mentioned Brexit about three times. What are we to read into this? Well, he did actually, Tom, mention it quite a lot, and he was wooing the uh, hardline Brexiteers, talking a lot about how they were going to grow the economy as a result of Brexit freedoms. I found that interesting because, as I said earlier in the podcast, apparently he models himself partly on Geoffrey Howe. And Geoffrey Howe, I got to know him towards the end of his life. A lovely guy, actually. Of course, I, I disagree with, with his uh, policies in the early 80s, but you could have very interesting discussions. He would not have pandered to the Brexit fantasists. And of course, he was one of those who actually negotiated our entry into Europe and resigned from the cabinet, partly because of Thatcher's uh, growing, shrieking hostility to the EU. But he did mention it, and it was in that uh, context, and only in that context. Tom wonders about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Well, it looks as if there's scope for agreement. But remember Sunak, in that weak position, can he persuade his parliamentary uh, party? So Paul Cooper is he's, he's worrying about growth again, and economic growth. He says, I know we have 68 million 
uh, willing souls to call on, but the UK population isn't big enough, skilled enough or financed enough to compete with the US, China or India. Look at British Vault. That was the battery company that went bust, having been billed as a world-leading one. Declinism isn't exactly the right description for our current plight, but we will need to import a lot of skilled and non-skilled labour to begin to address the shortfall. Yeah, one of the great taboos in British politics is the obvious fundamental cause of Britain's uh, low productivity is the labour shortages at the moment. Um, And where are we going to get them from? Anyway, uh, thank you, Paul. Simon Lockyer, he was also wondering about the Nick Timothy interview. Uh, But he says, I don't see the wider Conservative Party taking forward uh, Nick Timothy's ideas and spending money and intervening uh, as an active government, so to speak, where their main focus is balancing the books. Yeah, at the moment, the sort of Sunakite, Thatcherites are in charge. The other more dominant factions are the Boris Johnson sort of English nationalists. Then you've got the Liz Trussites, which are a sort of curious mix of Keynesian borrowing, but for Thatcherite tax cuts. I mean, it, it is all over the place. Simon says, looking to the future with retraining and reskilling to give workers the skills to produce goods the rest of the world wants. Easy to say, but much more difficult to do. And Simon also mentions this uh, emblematic car battery plant going bust last week. It's also difficult to pull back from a global capitalist system when anything you want to produce and then sell will need raw materials from that worldwide market. Yeah, that's another thing, isn't it? Supply chains. Can't get anything in this country this bloody country can't get anything. Supply chains. And in that, by the way, there is a way of framing popular accessible arguments, I think, about um, opening up that single market on our doorstep. It's bonkers where we are. It really is. Jeff Strange also, uh, uh, now he's got the luxury of uh, listening from uh, the European Union. He's in Ireland. Your chat with Nick Timothy was most interesting. I liked your initial tack of asking what government might be like without the cast and thrust of the uh, uh, sleaze-dominant politics, Brexit, etc., to which his reply was maybe one of Christian Democrat dimensions, uh, with German, maybe Germany is the most likely candidate. As your chat developed, I picked up uh, on how that word Brexit has lost all meaning, almost becoming an irrelevance. And Nick Timothy was at pains to stress the detailed mechanics of what an EU-free Britain might now focus on. But these remedies could have all been achieved while still being a member of the EU. Yeah, I, I agree, Jeff. I think Nick Timothy's agenda could have been fully implemented uh, with Britain being in the EU. And it wasn't implemented because of the furore of trying to get out of the EU. And that's how he, why he lost his job, basically. Now, on to another topic. Thanks, Jeff. I hope you're enjoying yourself in Ireland. Hugh Carr, for, for new listeners, we've been having our debate about reform, that famous ubiquitous word that means 10,000 different things. And one of the things we have looked at, as many of you will know, is co-payments. Many of you disagree, but some of our correspondents from places uh, in uh, Europe say it works quite well there. Uh, but Hugh Carr writes, oh, we listened to the podcast uh, while uh, having while cooking chicken kurma. I think uh, that you're not alone uh, on that front, Hugh. Um, and what a what a fruitful use of time. But he's he again, like a lot of you, just thinks co-payments is absolutely the wrong way to go. 
uh, so, and, and here's why. First of all, it's the, the Gordon Brown wrote about this the other day. It breaks the fundamental principle of the NHS, free at the point of use. But even if the NHS charges for A&E visits, GP appointments, will that reduce demand significantly? Elderly people, children, households on benefits and the chronically ill would be excluded from charges. Uh, but they are by far the heaviest users of the NHS. Meanwhile, it will cost quite a lot of money to administer co-payments for the rest of us. He just thinks it's not uh, workable. Uh, and he says it goes back to framing a debate around tax and spend where you can get the resources through that means. And there was a brilliant email uh, last week. I'm going to read it out again at some point about how you can frame an argument around tax and spend, even in England, and win it. You know, when I hear about access to GPs in, I don't know, Brussels and Germany and so on, you do, you do wonder. I won't put it any more than that. <music> Professor Barry Langford has an idea for a slogan for Labour. I'd like to suggest renewing Britain as Labour's ubiquitous slogan at every public event, every piece of campaign literature and on the lips of every shadow minister. In the first place, the term obviously includes the talismatic term new. Ah, yeah, yeah, renewing, new, which worked so well for Blair in uh, 1997. New Labour, new Britain, Britain reborn. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nobody needs to argue the value of being associated with newness. Uh, and the unavailability of newness for uh, Tories after 13 years in office. For those, not me, still under thrall of new Labour, that's him saying that, but um, I think anyone under the spell of new Labour now needs to look ahead. That's me speaking. It will have happy echoes of that sunlit, optimistic May uh, 25 years ago. More relevantly to the present omni-crisis, it succinctly implies that under the Tories, Britain has become shabby, run-down, creaky and stale. No one should underestimate the potent appeal to a nation of home improvers, of imagery of gutting, refitting, modernisation, without the dreaded term reform. Yeah, reform. We're all believers in reform. Yeah, it's quite good. And he analyses it as if he was a combination of Alistair Campbell, Peter Manderson, all the geniuses. Newness in the phrase isn't just descriptive, it's an active verb. Oh, on it goes. Well, you, you, you could earn a fortune working for Keir Starmer. Uh, yeah, the, these slogans are, are they're really interesting. I mean, it's not a bad one, not a bad one, uh, Barry. I, the, the thing is, what I was thinking about it, I mean, your, your, your case for it is brilliant. And the analysis of the word new being in there, and the, 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 but it has a hint of modernity and so on. It's not that grabby, though, is it, Barry? What are you for, you know, uh, you know, renewing Britain? I, it's very difficult, but it's better than some of them. You know, oh God, I remember uh, the, uh, what was the, the one um, in, I think it was the Labour's 2005 election, forward, not back. You know, these things are pretty desperate on the whole. I mean, who's, oh yeah, oh, we're going to vote for the party saying they're going to go back. No, no, we'll go, oh, you know, forward, back. You know, it's, um, it, they're quite revealing, though, because um, New Labour was always about this uh, divide over time, you know, uh, old and new, forward, back. Um, 
uh, for reasons which will go into another time. Look, anyway, thank you. Brilliant. And I know uh, many people in the Shadow Cabinet listen to this podcast that have taken notes, Barry. But look, I think we better stop now. We've been going on for quite some time. Thank you so much for listening. If you like it, only if you do, please leave a review. Uh, It gets more of us involved for reasons I don't understand. As I say, please book tickets for the live shows. We've got to make sense of it all live over some drinks and having some fun. God knows what they'll be about. They'll all be different, though. And they'll be, um, well, I don't know where we'll be. None of us do uh, by then. And yeah, well, look, have a great time uh, and look forward to seeing you later on in the week with another fantastic interview arising out of uh, our conversations in our cooperative together as we struggle to make sense of it all Um, and see you then. So take care, enjoy yourselves making sense. Bye. Bye.